Volume One, Chapter Thirteen of *The Rebel Rose* by Justin McCarthy and Rosa Campbell Prade. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Bothwell Part. Meanwhile, Lady Saxon too had been moving about, having come across several people whom she knew she had exchanged a few words with bellarmin upon whom the double fascination was working and who was like a moth between two flames she left him presently and got in conversation with an attache of a foreign embassy who expressed some surprise at seeing her in mary stuart beaton's circle lady saxon in her turn said to champion when chance threw them together i was not prepared to find you in the pretendress's court why not he rejoined she is a very fresh and interesting young woman quite a picturesque figure i don't know if anything can be done for her he added in a reflective sort of manner the manner vexed lady saxon partly because his reflections were about miss beaton partly because he was reflecting about anything while supposed to be engaged in conversation with josephine saxon have you any ambition to be a nineteenth-century general monk she said saucily general monk he did not understand her at first oh yes i see no i was not thinking of a stuart restoration only of a possible restoration of stuart property a little wave of people who were near broke upon them and lady saxon found herself talking to someone else with the annoying idea that sir victor had purposely escaped from her she had a wonderful knack of seeing all that was going on around her without even seeming to turn her eyes away from any one with whom she was talking she saw now that bellarmin was standing at mary beaton's side and that general falcon was close by with a set frown on his face general falcon evidently did not like bellarmin's attentions to mary beaton and the mere fact made lady saxon like them less for it showed that falcon thought there was something serious in them yes i am delighted with my glimpse into your parliamentary life mary was saying i mean your house of commons life i think the other house is lifeless and dull but your house of commons i don't know how any englishman could live without trying to take part in that sort of battle as mary spoke a little bunch of roses of a peculiar reddish color which she wore at her girdle and with which she had been carelessly toying fell to the ground bellarmin moved to save the bouquet from being trodden on by the bystanders but falcon was beforehand with him stooping his erect form and gray head he picked up the flowers and gave them back to his mistress who did not seem to have noticed her loss she gave him a little nod more impatient than grateful general she said laughingly you watch me as closely as a heron watches his prey or a master his pupil i am sure that you are afraid of my becoming corrupted by dangerous doctrine or of saying something that would be unbecoming in a steward mr bellarmin isn't a socialist or a dynamiter or even a whig dear tyrant and do you know this is the third time in the last hour that you have interrupted the flow of my conversation by restoring some lost property which i could very well have done without for a time falcon drew himself up stiffly he averted his face for a moment that mary might not see how deeply he was wounded lady saxon's eyes met his full she smiled and he turned away again quickly i am very sorry madame he said in a deep resentful voice that my small services annoy you so much on the contrary dear general 
I am quite aware that they are my salvation. There's no saying what would become of me if it were not for you. But you know school children like to tease their masters sometimes. Are those flowers from your own garden, madame? asked Bellarmine. They are very curious. I never before saw roses that color. They grow in Schwabenstadt and nowhere else, replied Mary. The dear old Grand Duchess invented them. I like them because they remind me of my childhood. And do you know that General Falcon, who in spite of his tyrannical ways, can be quite courtier-like when he pleases, gets them over for me, and every day makes me a pretty little posy. Mary scarcely glanced at Falcon as she thus alluded lightly to his devotion, but Lady Saxon, with her keen woman's perception, divined how that arrow would strike home. The wave of emotion, which for an instant swept over the stern man's face, and which no one else, perhaps, would have observed, for whom it could have any particular significance, revealed to her experienced gaze what the thoughtless girl was so far from suspecting. Bellarmine still examined the flowers. He admired their peculiar color, and praised their perfume, and he quoted in courtier fashion the well-known line, The fairest rose in Scotland grows on the topmost bough, and made a playful allusion to Mary Stuart's device of the crowned red rose. Would you like to have them, said Mary simply, and with a little gesture of graceful condescension, which was quite spontaneous, and had a sort of regal absence of affectation, she gave Bellarmine Falcon's posy. The young man accepted it, as he might have accepted the gift of a sovereign. Falcon made an abrupt, passionate movement, as if he would snatch away the bouquet. The scar on his forehead showed dangerously upon the red flush which rose, but he restrained himself. His arm dropped heavily to his side, and he was turning away. Just then Mary said, her eyes still wandering, "'General, I don't think you are doing your duty as a gallant soldier ought. I am sure that Lady Saxon must want some iced coffee or something. Take her to the tea-room.' And with a little imperious wave of her hand she dismissed him. Lady Saxon saw it all. Her heart thrilled with mingled exultation and anger. She was inclined to think that Mary meant offence to her in thrusting Falcon on her. So you have to be polite to me, General Falcon. Your young mistress commands it, she said, as he gravely offered her his arm, murmuring, You will permit me, madame? I try to be polite, Falcon returned grimly. But you don't much care for this sort of thing. I don't much care for mixed assemblies. Something in the tone in which he said this, and the look which accompanied his words, made Lady Saxon's cheek flame. She was at once alarmed and offended. She said nothing, however, but, putting on her most gracious air, let him take her to the tea-room, where she drank a cup of iced coffee and played with some grapes. Presently, she said to him, I should like to take a turn with you in the garden. Lady Saxon had a keen memory for faces, and a sensitive faculty which forestalled memory itself by association. She had had to live on the defensive very much during certain years of her life, and even in these her later days, when smooth success strewn beneath her feet made her path so comparatively easy and pleasant, she found caution necessary. It occasionally happened that a disagreeable association surrounded some face which she supposed she was seeing for the first time, and then the association resolved itself into memory and justified itself. A chill, 
uncomfortable sensation had passed through her when in the central lobby of the house of commons she had first seen falcon's marked face with the heavy drooping moustache that reminded her she could not tell why of a hawk's wing and the steely grey and restless eyes eyes in the depths of which something tyrannous and cruel might be read she thought but on that evening lady saxon's mind and heart had been so fully occupied that she had not troubled herself about general falcon and her vague qualms concerning him they had come back to her later however and she had remembered the man in a dim indefinite way yes she knew that they had met before he had seen her in england in her bohemian days before the dulcamara enterprise of her first husband had been covered by a patent of nobility he had seen her perhaps with champion before victor had become famous lady saxon was not a woman to wait for danger and let it choose its own time for finding her out she always preferred to go forth to meet it we have met before general falcon she said turning to him with a fearless smile your face is quite familiar to me he bowed we have met before madame i never forget a face like yours she went on perhaps she added with a benign encouraging glance a face like mine is not easily forgotten i remembered your face perfectly he replied and he looked at her straight as he spoke he could not help soldier that he was feeling a little thrill of admiration for her courage yes i am glad not with any disagreeable association i hope there was nothing particularly disagreeable in it to me madame i have met you on several occasions in the company of your late husband who was not then baron langenwald and i have seen you on two or three occasions about the same time in the company of another person lady saxon was silent for a moment she recollected now that falcon had gone to her husband for treatment of his wound she recollected what langenwald had told her of its probable effect upon falcon's life and temperament i understand she said with the composure that under the conditions did her credit general falcon a soldier means to remind me that he knew me when i was poor and humble and under a cloud oh madame the steely eyes flashed the heavy moustache moved in deprecation what else she blandly asked what else could i understand well i dare say you know all about me and my worst days my poverty and my struggles and how a quack adventurer made use of my youth and my well i suppose i may say beauty to advertise his drugs what then perhaps general falcon thinks my husband lord saxon does not know general falcon is mistaken my husband does know all her audacity deceived falcon for a moment when later on he thought over it he felt almost certain that she had lied now it occurred to him that she was brave enough to have trusted to lord saxon's infatuation and to have secured herself by telling him the truth i was not thinking of that madame he replied i was not thinking of lord saxon i have not to think of him i was thinking of others whom it might have been my duty to caution against mary beaton's silvery laugh rang out in the soft summer air as she too came with a little group of people from the tea-room lady saxon looked meaningly towards her 
and then unflinchingly at falcon who at the sound of mary's voice had started and glanced in her direction lady saxon laughed too and lightly touched his arm with the gold handle of her parasol forcing him to meet her gaze do not be so impatient to go to her she does not want you it is only natural that she should prefer mr bellarmin's society to that of her guardian your mary stuart likes to be amused general and you are too old to play the part of chasselard that of bothwell would suit you better i shall suggest to her that she had better be careful madame you would not dare dare is an odd word isn't it for a man especially for a soldier to use towards a woman i am not afraid of any one in the world general falcon i am not even afraid of my husband and though that may seem strange to you i am not in the least afraid of any stories you may think proper to tell of me they couldn't do me any harm they might hurt me perhaps if i were struggling for a place in society if i were in a fashion on probation but as it is lady saxon drew her parasol into a perpendicular position and lowered it with an air of magnificent disdain she wished to imply that society would not believe stories about a woman who was marchioness of saxon and might any day be duchess of athelstane i warn you however general she went on that i know your secret and that though you cannot injure me it might be better for you and for your mistress and for the success of your hopes to make a friend of me instead of an enemy she spoke coldly and made a move across the grass as if she would put an end to the conversation and join her hostess falcon stopped her with a gesture of entreaty and she turned back towards him still cool and smiling she saw that he was at her mercy come she said you see that your secret is more important to you than mine if i had any particular secret which i haven't i can be bon camarade if i choose and in any case i am not fond of telling tales out of school i should really like to help you if we were to decide upon being friends just for the mere interest of the thing there's something quite picturesque in the idea of an old soldier like you reckless and heroic chivalrous and all the rest madly in love like some knight of old and with the prince's claimant too you should win your suit by some daring stroke the bothwell sort of thing you know and if your mary stuart has the blood of her ancestress in her veins that kind of wooing might well appeal to her i assure you general that i should be quite sorry to work against anything so romantic it would be too commonplace to marry your princess to a young london tory democrat whose highest ambition would be gratified by a summons to windsor every shaft that she had aimed struck home falcon writhed inwardly with fury and pain and yet he realized in a strange confused way that there was a certain affinity between the reckless spirit of this woman and his own her extravagant suggestions contemptuously as they had been uttered seemed an echo of the wild imaginings of his brain of thoughts and impossible projects which had haunted his dreaming and waking hours he felt instinctively that there were passionate chords in her nature which made her comprehend his mad love for mary 
Lady Saxon, he said with impulsive appeal, you know how. You understand what a man feels. Something tells me that you do. A man such as I am, for whom youth is gone, all its crackling fires swelled into one terrible flame that burns, and burns, and that nothing can quench except— He stopped short and laughed in harsh, quavering tone. You are a woman who knows. You have a soldier's spirit. I like the way you face danger. I'll keep your secret, Lady Saxon, though you deny that you have one. And I will trust to your woman's generosity to keep mine. Falcon's tone and manner were not without dignity. They touched Lady Saxon curiously. She had been perfectly sincere when she told him that she would rather be his friend than his enemy. You may do more than rely on my generosity, she said. You may rely upon my help. Perhaps I may be of greater service to you than you think now, and you may not be sorry that I have surprised your secret. Come to me if ever you want a woman's advice, and trust me. I know it all. I know what your love is, and what it means to you. I know what you dread, and would avert, whom you like, and whom you dislike. Don't ask me how I know all this. It is enough that I do know, and that no one else does." Lady Saxon's voice was low, but her manner was intensely melodramatic. She delighted in the melodramatic. She was never so much herself as when she was play-acting. Now she had a purpose in her melodrama, and felt such a pride in its success as Hamlet must have felt when he found that his lines of tragedy had caught the conscience of the king. She made a movement which signified that she had no more to say. She did not wish to mar her latest effect by another word on the subject just then. Come, she said. Will you see me to my carriage? I am going now to bid Miss Beaton good-bye. Falcon followed her across the lawn to where Mary was standing among a rapidly thinning crowd. Lady Saxon bade her a gracious farewell, and again spoke of the contemplated dinner-party, which it was decided should take place upon a day fixed after the Winsontide vacation. "'We are going to stay with Lord Stonehenge,' Mary said, "'and we shall not be back till after the recess.' "'I, too, shall be out of town,' said Lady Saxon. "'But my holiday place will not be so delightful as yours, Miss Beaton. "'You have never seen that part of the coast.' It is so wild that you could hardly imagine it comparatively near London. I have a den of my own down there. I almost wish that I were going to have one of my misanthropic fits and to retire to my eyrie by the sea. I could never have suspected you of misanthropic fits, Lady Saxon, put in Bellarmine, with a certain forced gaiety. It is true, though, an effect of early barbarism, Miss Beaton. I was not trained like you to the restraints of polite society. My girlhood was an odd, unconventional one. She darted a fearless glance at the bystanders as she spoke, and laughed her ringing little laugh, which seemed to proclaim that she considered herself above criticism. I like to break away from my shackles sometimes. And your eyrie by the sea is near Stonehenge? asked Mary, interested. This was a new view of Lady Saxon's character which appealed to her. Yes, high up on the cliffs. Lord Stonehenge can show it to you if he pleases. I wish I were going to be there to show it to you myself, and to you, Mr. Bellarmine. You would believe in my misanthropy then. She gave him a smile that said, 
you see i know all about the visit and the snares that are being laid for you and i am quite indifferent then she went on you didn't know lord stonehenge that i possess the loneliest and most romantic of ruined castles about ten miles from your own you mean petrel's rest replied lord stonehenge i go so seldom beyond my own gates when i am down there but i have seen the place i did not know that lord saxon ever used it i dragged him there once in our honeymoon days it was a freak of mine and i fell in love with the old ruin and he made it over to me as a wedding present i keep a very primitive staff there and when i am tired of london life and country house parties i want to draw a breath of freedom and to be savage again without shocking anybody's prejudices i run down there all by myself for a day or two lady saxon departed having left a dramatic impression behind her falcon saw her into her carriage and then came back to the grounds he did not join the rest but sought refuge in a quaint little strip of flower garden partly screened from inquisitive eyes by a projecting wing of the house and by a spreading beech tree through which the soft breeze gently rustled and seemed to chime with the hum of voices and laughter beyond the windows of mary's sitting-room looked out on the rose-beds and grassy walks there was a broken sundial in the centre and falcon leaned his arms upon it and gazed up miserably into the foliage of the beech-tree he felt the dull heavy pain of his old wound throbbing in his head and the humiliation and the anxiety he had just been undergoing seemed part of the wound's pain somehow lo the very secret of his heart of hearts the secret with which he would not trust the winds or the birds of the air which he had long tried to keep a secret even from himself had been snatched from him by a woman who was not fit to breathe the same air as his queen his stately innocent princess the lady of his love it seemed an insult to mary that his secret and hers it must be hers when the time was ripe should be in the keeping of lady saxon the maddest thoughts shot tormentingly through his distracted mind if he could but kill her but he must stoop to her give her his confidence profess to trust her profess to be her friend see her in familiar companionship with his mistress one word from her might put out forever the light of poor falcon's tortured life mary's guests were melting away only a few remained tressel in close conversation with lord stonehenge had gone towards the house after having made his farewell bow to miss beaton and bellarmin wondered within himself what political log-rolling could have induced tressel to pay an afternoon call and deny himself for two whole hours the luxury of a cigarette must you go sir victor mary asked as she saw champion coming up to her evidently with the intention of taking his leave i am sorry to say that i must i have even outstayed what ought to have been my limit of time i am proud of having had so much of your time given up to me said mary sweetly it is an honour any woman might well feel proud of you are not any woman miss beaton ah that is nicely said i like to hear a great man pay a pretty compliment i didn't know that i was doing anything of the kind i was only going to explain why i was so glad to outstay the limit of my time here madame he paid her the further compliment of recognizing the formal mode of address 
which her courtiers adopted in so dainty and courtly a manner that the young girl for she was but a girl our princess mary felt her heart give a bound of gratified vanity well she said it is a triumph for me to have kept you beyond the limit of your time but i hope i haven't done harm like the girl in scott's novel who keeps the brave knight by her side while the standard of england which he was sent to guard is torn from its place sir victor's cheek flushed slightly his enemies had a way of saying that he had no regard for the standard of his country but it was plain that mary meant nothing of the kind she noted his momentary pause however have you not read scott she asked i am told no one in england reads scott nowadays we do read him abroad oh yes i know scott well sir victor replied what was there which sir victor could say he did not know no miss beaton the comparison will not hold your influence will never be employed to keep any soldier of england from guarding her standard and to prove it i am going along now to my post at westminster he took her hand and bent over it as though he were doing homage to a recognized princess and he too made his way back through the tea-room and out into the street bellarmine was almost the last presently he too made his farewell are you going to the house of commons too mary asked yes he answered but i'm afraid that my absence from the post at westminster wouldn't be of quite so much importance to england as that of sir victor champion bellarmine had been speaking in a constrained manner he was doing his best to compel himself to look on mary beaton as a woman utterly away from him and to keep her out of his heart mary suddenly seemed to notice something strange in his voice and his manner wholly unsuspicious of the real cause she looked at him with open and sympathetic eyes and asked are you not well mr bellarmine oh yes madame quite well you don't look like it you are doing too much in the house of commons of course you are going to stonehenge park that will do you good i don't intend to go to stonehenge park no she looked at him in wonder oh surely you will go i look forward to meeting you there yes you will go he shook his head no i think not but you will go if i command you she said with a smile which went through the young man's heart if you command oh then i do command then i will go and a thrill of joy and fear shot through his heart thank you ever so much you have made me glad good-bye she had made him glad too though his heart had remorse and dread in it as he left her and knew that his resolve to keep away from her had died of her first entreaty end of volume one chapter thirteen recording by diana beauvais end of the rebel rose volume one by justin mccarthy and rosa campbell prayed